in a few moments, but let me give you something to think about. Have you ever known anybody who always believed that they were the smartest person in the room? No matter who else is in the room, they believe that they're the smartest. Now, I, did, I asked that question in the first service, and people started shouting names out. I don't really want you to do that. I think most of them were wives, but... Um, you know who I'm talking about? It's, it's that person who always has a better way. No matter what you've thought of, no matter what the group has thought of, this is the person who always knows better, has a better approach to it, has a better way of thinking about it than what you've done. They're the smartest person in the room as far as they're concerned. And that pushes me to one of my favorite all-time preacher stories, Preacher story is code speak for it's no way that's true, but it does make a good point for us. Uh, it's one of those stories that takes place in a small airplane. There are three passengers on this airplane. There is a college professor who also happens to be one of those well-known internationally kind of guys, cutting edge of thinking, you know, the guy, kind of guy who wins the Nobel Prize or the, you know, that kind of stuff. So he's as one of these passengers. Uh, there's also a pastor, and then there's a Boy Scout. And somewhere in the middle of the flight, the plane is just big enough to have a door that seals the cabin off, but it's not really big enough to have a whole lot other than what's in there. And so somewhere in the middle of the flight, the door flies open, the pilot comes running back into the, uh, the passenger compartment there, and he throws the door of this little storage area open, and he reaches down, and he grabs this uh, pack-looking thing, and he picks it up, and it, it's a parachute, and he starts to put it on, and as he's putting it on, the other three passengers are going, what is going on here? And the passenger, I mean, excuse me, the, the pilot looks backwards, and he says, the, the plane is going down, we have a malfunction, and we can't fix it, so... Every man for himself, there's parachutes in the closet, do your thing. And so he, with that, throws the door open and jumps out with a parachute on. Now, immediately, there is this discussion among the three passengers. This one guy who believes that he's the smartest guy in the world, and matter of fact, he says something to that effect as he argues for why he should get a, a parachute. Well, what I left off is they go to this compartment and there's actually only two parachutes left. There's three passengers but two parachutes. And so he's grabbing one of the two remaining parachutes and as he's putting it on he's talking about how the world needs him that he's in the middle of this incredible research and it's going to change the whole uh, future of the world and so he grabs puts it on and the smartest man in the world jumps out with a parachute. So that leaves one parachute a pastor and a boy scout you know, young man, uh, I've spent my life serving the Lord and serving people, and there's just one parachute left, and I'm ready to meet my maker, so why don't you take the last parachute and you jump? And the Boy Scout said, no, sir, you don't, really, I don't think that's necessary. Matter of fact, I'm sure it's not necessary. Uh, the pastor won't even hear that. He just, no, I, I insist my life is done. I'm, I'm, sad. I'm ready to meet the Lord. So you take and you go make a difference in the world. I insist. And the Boy Scout, sir, sir, that's really not necessary. You see, the smartest man in the world just jumped out with my backpack. Okay, now. Now you know the guy I'm talking about, okay? 
The guy who's the smartest one in the room, no matter who else is there, always has a better way. Um, all right, so here, here's, here's the, uh, the serious part of that illustration. When you become egocentric in your life, bad things are going to follow. When you or I push ourselves as if we are, in fact, the smartest person in the room, any room, no matter who else is in the room, then I can promise you your spiritual condition is suspect, which pushes us immediately into the next parable that Jesus is telling as we look deeper into what it means to be part of the kingdom of God and what this thing called life in the kingdom is supposed to look like, Jesus in Luke chapter 18 tells a parable that hammers us. Okay, well, now I let the cat out of the bag too early, all right? What I want you to do today is I want you to find yourself in this parable. And when we come to the end of it, we'll talk about where you find yourself and where I find myself in it. But let's go ahead and read it so that we understand what Jesus is talking about. Luke chapter 18 and verse 9 reads this way. And I should start off by saying Luke lets the cat out of the bag early. We don't see this very often in the parables. But Luke tells us ahead of time why this parable is being told. We find bookends The front side is by Luke, the back side is by Jesus, where it is spelled out pretty clearly for us what this parable is about. So in Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9, it reads this way. He also, that is Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Here's the parable. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. In other words, you're lucky that I'm here. Verse 13, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. We have between these bookends, Luke telling us the focal group, Jesus telling us the point. And in between there, we find the opportunity to find ourselves. Let's look at these two guys in the time that we have together today, and I just challenge you to find yourself in this. First of all, we look at the Pharisee, and here's a guy that, uh, from our perspective in the 21st century, I, I think that maybe we miss some of what Jesus is doing here. All right? And especially some of what those hearers of this parable of the first time it's told by Jesus would have, would have heard in it. Because in our point of reference, we know enough of the Gospels. We know that Jesus and the religious leaders, many of whom are Pharisees, are at odds with one another. That Jesus comes in and he's 
preaching the kingdom and he's living the kingdom truth out in front of them and they are wowed by that and they're drawn to that and that challenges and threatens the establishment of the religious society of Israel at the time. And so those scribes and religious leaders, many of whom are Pharisees, now begin to take to Jesus. And in Luke's gospel, Jesus is almost now into that final week of his life. And there's big time opposition going here. And Jesus, in this travel narrative, as he makes his way from Galilee through Samaria down into Judea where he will be crucified, he tells this whole series of parables. And this is at the tail end of that process. And so we hear this comment about a Pharisee and we immediately hear what Jesus says about him and we jump to a negative connotation of him. But I don't believe that those first century listeners would have heard it that way. Matter of fact, I think that the first century listeners, when they get through most of the parable, they would have gone, okay, yeah, so what? That's normal living around here. As it relates to the parable, let me give you an example. Um, we're we're going to be, I want you to keep your place here, but I'm going to go backwards to Psalm chapter 17 with you because we hear this prayer and it sounds to us like it's loaded with self-righteousness. Well, It is. But my point here is I don't believe that those first century listeners would have heard the self-righteousness in it. Because in fact, this guy as a Pharisee was part of that group of people that I put in our term, they were reformers of Judaism. They had been on the scene for a while and they came on the scene and kind of rose to prominence as a reaction against the secularization of the Jewish society. And so as God disciplined Uh, Israel for their apostasy and their walking away from him, second century BC more or less, we find this group starting to raise up and their whole intended purpose is to bring back that part of their religion that was geared towards holiness. Now, let me, here's why I think we really need to stop and let this say what it says to us because that's essentially what we do here week after week after week. My stated goal in every sermon when I come up here, I've said it many times before, I want to not just tell you about living for God, I want to give you tools so that you don't need me to tell you about living with God. Because we all are called to be like Christ. You agree with that? All right, well, then you would have loved the Pharisees in the first century. Well, maybe not loved them because some of them were jerks. Kind of like some preachers, present company excluded, I know. (laughs) So this group, this Pharisee group, whose sole existence is to bring back an emphasis on holiness among God's people. This Pharisee now begins to do the religious thing. And in this prayer, where he talks about how good he is, how lucky God is to have him on his side. We hear that and we brace at that. But they would have heard that as a natural kind of prayer. Both of the prayers of these guys in this passage are are found in the book of Psalms in the Old Testament. Matter of fact, we got one each, the good one and the bad one of the parable, you find represented in David himself. This one who scripture says was a man after God's own heart. In Psalm 17, verses 3 through 5, here's what David prays. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. 
You have tested me and you will find nothing. In other words, I'm good. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. That is a prayer of confidence before God that says, check me out and you'll find I'm good. So those first century listeners hearing a Pharisee pray this way might not have been too shocked or scandalized by it. But we've figured out by now, the way we have seen Jesus telling these parables, that there's always a hook in them. There's, there's always that element of the parables that he tells that point to something that looks normal, but something is not exactly right in that. And so we jump to, and I think we correctly jump to, but again, we jump to it before we think about how those first century listeners would have heard it. We jump to this view of the sinner. But it's not just that sinner. This Pharisee gives something of an abbreviated laundry list of sinners. Lord, I'm so glad that I am not like these guys, especially the tax collector. Nobody in first century Jewish life would have really liked a tax collector, except another tax collector maybe and some of these other sinful people that they seem to hang around with that Jesus frequented their places. But the common people, they wouldn't have liked the tax collector at all because the tax collector is the one who was a traitor to the Jewish people. He was under the employ of the Roman government, and he was charged with uh, collecting a certain amount of taxes plus anything above that he could keep for himself. And so these guys were ruthless. They, they were hated in the Jewish landscape. So they wouldn't have heard any problems in the way that Pharisee was praying. I I want you to take all of that because all of that points us to a fundamental principle as it relates to the characteristic of people who live in the kingdom of God and are kingdom people. Here's the principle. Just because it's okay with society doesn't make it okay with God. Okay, now I just did a dramatic pause to let that sink in for you. Let me change it just a tad. Just because it's acceptable in church culture doesn't make it acceptable with God. What is the problem with this Pharisee? How would those first century listeners have heard Jesus' parable and that slant that comes in, not the truth that hits you between the eyes, but the truth that you get after you walk away and you think about it, you go, hey, what, what, maybe, what, what was he saying with that? What was wrong with this guy? You, you know what? You go back and look through that, at least in my translation. Five times in two verses, he refers to himself in the first person. I blank. Now, I, I, there was a time I would have said this guy had eye trouble. I'll say it that way, but it seems a little cliche for what we're trying to emphasize here. Five different times in two verses, I want you to notice his posture. According to this, it goes and he's standing by himself, 
Okay, posture and position. What we find is this kind of a haughty kind of deal. And he goes, most, we're going to find with the, uh, with the tax collector that he's not by himself. Uh, probably, many scholars tell us that probably what we find here is in Jesus' story that this Pharisee has gone as far into the temple courts as he can go. You know, we know from our study that there are different levels and, you know, the Gentiles have to kind of hang around on the outside because after all, they don't really belong in church. Uh, this is a Jewish thing. Uh, and then after that is the court of the women because women, you know, they're second-class citizens. <clears throat> I, that's Old Testament and that's not me, okay? Uh, and then these Jewish men and these religious leaders get to go a little bit further. And so the picture here is of a Pharisee who wears it, I mean, you know, decked out, going to church. And he goes in as far as he can go, and as he does, he proudly stands, and he lifts his voice so that everybody can hear the golden words that everyone should aspire to. Wow, this guy's, man, he's holy. Interesting the way Luke writes this. Verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Let me give you a very literal translation of the Greek in that little section right there. Again, my ESV says who trusted in themselves. A very literal translation is who had convinced themselves that they were righteous. Ah, you know that guy, don't you? All of us know that guy. The one who has convinced himself that when it comes to the things of God, they're the smartest guy in the room. But you see, those things that he does and the the attitude that he carries with himself, there's the slant from Jesus. Because what disqualifies him from righteousness is his condescension to other people. It's not that the religious stuff that he does is not any good. I mean, he, he's, he's the poster child for overdoing religion. Jewish law required one fast a year. He does it twice a week. Jewish law required tithing. He tithes on everything he gets, even the gifts that he gets. So let me give you a couple of truths that grow out of the the slant that Jesus gives here. Those people would have heard this prayer and they would have heard, yeah, that sounds okay. But Jesus says, not okay. And the reason it's not okay is because of the condescension that he has towards other people. That violates a kingdom law, which is love God and the law is love people. But he doesn't love people. He just loves to be seen by people. And you know that guy. So let me give you a couple of truths that grow out of this. And these are hard, and I get, I get that. But here's the first one. And I'm going to use the word Pharisee here as it's tied to him. I'm not referring to all Pharisees. And actually, it's kind of code word to bring into our lives today, okay? Here's the first truth that I get out of this. Pharisees love to hunt. All right, now I'm looking across here, and I see a lot of you guys and ladies who are hunters. I did not say hunters are Pharisees just in case you're thinking of hunting me, okay? 
It's not what I said. Figuratively speaking, Pharisees love to hunt. In other words, the smartest man in the room is always looking for somebody to kill. In the religious room, anyway. The reason for that is because this whole approach to living, this prideful approach, this self-righteous approach to life... um, excels at tearing other people down. And they have to tear other people down in order to make themselves look better. Churches are full of this hunting Pharisee. I had this, I'll use myself as an example, as, as the victim, because, you know, I would never be a Pharisee, right? <clears throat> Hello? Right. So in the last part, I mean, the, the home stretch of the last formal education that I went through was loaded with work. And I mean, it was just one of those things where I was working hours and hours every day trying to finish this thing. Uh, and so I took some vacation time uh, and stayed at home and worked on it. Now, typically when I take vacation, I like to take the vacation Sunday on the end of my vacation week so that I don't have to prepare a lesson or a sermon uh, and then come back a week later and preach it, right? So I always like to be off on the Sunday at the end of the week and start over on Monday. And so I had done that. I'd been off all week from the office, uh, and I stayed home on Sunday morning that day and was working on my school stuff so that I could finish it in time. And Teresa and the kids went on to church, another church, another city, okay, just so you know. And this one sweet little old Pharisee woman, came up to Teresa. Remember, the point is, Pharisees love to hunt. Came up to Teresa, and she's indignant. I mean, written over with the love of God. <laughs> I heard that Mark was off hunting today, and he's on Sunday. He ought to be at church, not off hunting. And here's a little truth that that shows us about these hunting Pharisees. They don't need truth. They make up their own truth. And so... This lady was operating from bad information, first of all, and then attacked my wife, second of all, as a way of attacking me, third of all. And so I became the Pharisee who wanted to go on a hunt when I found out about that. That makes sense to you? Okay. Pharisees love to hunt. This smarter-than-you, self-righteous Pharisee loves to kill people. Usually they do it with golden tongues. But we should probably feel a little sympathy for them because after all, (laughs) they're fighting a battle that they can't win because they're never the smartest person in the room. Here's the second truth. First one was what? Pharisee, are y'all with me? Because I'll just, we'll be done if you're not. Pharisees love to hunt, right? Here's the second one. Pharisees love to hunt in groups. And churches are full of this self-righteous person who bands together with other self-righteous people and commit mass executions with golden tongues. (laughs) There's a new TV show on. I'm not recommending it to you. I'm fascinated with the concept. 
Um, because it's, it's actually a TV show that's based on a fiction, at least a book. It may be several books. I don't know. I've never read this particular author. But the title of the program is... Okay, parents, if you have young children here, distract them. Um, the title, because I don't want them watching it. The title is Zoo, Z-O-O, okay? And the whole premise of this show is that the animal kingdom decides to band together and strategically eliminate humans, okay? Now, uh, first of all, where's God in that? That's a good question to ask on that kind of a premise. But anyway, here's my point in that. In this, the, the first show of that, we find this setting in Africa and these lions, all male lions, are banding together and they're going after this safari camp. The reason that sticks out in my mind, first of all, I'm intrigued with the idea how some guy could think that up. But then I start thinking, that guy must go to church all the time. (laughs) Doesn't that sound like church people to you sometimes? We have carnivorous groups in church. They band together and they murderize people. Why is Jesus so hard on them or us? You see what I just did? (laughs) I found myself in here. Because the reality is, if you look deeply enough, I look deeply into this and I found me in this Pharisee. Because every one of us have a tendency towards self-righteousness. Every one of us has the very real capacity to tear somebody else down because we think we're smarter than they are. So let me just ask it to you this way. Who is it in your life that models this Pharisee? But don't look outward until you first exhaust the search inward. Okay, so that's him. And there's, oh, I should say this because I don't want to lose what I'm driving at here. The reason that this guy is in trouble It's because he's living in such a way that totally tries to cancel out what the kingdom of God is. You know what Matthew 5, 3 says? This is, let me give you the context because I wouldn't expect you. When I first moved here, uh, it's been five years ago almost exactly now that I preached this series through the Sermon on the Mount, right? And in the Sermon on the Mount, one of the things that I said was it captures for us, it's Jesus' sum total preaching on what the kingdom of God is and what it looks like. And the introduction of the Sermon on the Mount, that which is supposed to kind of point to what the whole thing is about, is the Beatitudes. And the first Beatitude says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know what that means? It's a point of spiritual bankruptcy. The entry point to the kingdom of heaven is a point of spiritual bankruptcy, of total understand I can't get there on my own. I can't do this. And to come in as a self-righteous, pompous person is just totally at odds with what the kingdom of God is supposed to be about. And so Jesus says stuff like, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And in the backward bookend of this one, he says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus slants the truth 
And as we walk away from this, we must find ourselves in the Pharisee. But I don't want to finish it there, and I've just got a couple of minutes left, so let me quickly take you to the tax collector. Because he's the guy, back to the slant for Jesus, he's the guy that none of them would have wanted to be like. As a matter of fact, that would be like calling somebody a name today that I probably shouldn't say in church. And yet, that's how they thought of these people. Notice the description of him. You go back and look at that. He's totally opposite of what that Pharisee was. He takes on characteristics that men would never have taken, especially not important men. Men didn't go into public and beat their breasts out of sense of shame. No self-respecting man would do that in public. You know what I think? I think this is the curveball that Jesus throws them. I think that they would have heard this and said, what's that guy doing in church in the first place? So let me just ask us, who is it that if they showed up in church today, you would ask that question, what are they doing here? Let me just give you a few from the religious Pharisees of our day. Those people that are tax collectors in the first century that we would say today, what are you doing in church? How about if a gay person showed up in here and you knew they were gay? I don't want to put it on us. Let's put it on some other group. Why why would they be going to church? How about a Democrat? Or Republican, whichever one you happen to not be. What are they doing in church? They don't belong in church. That guy's a Mormon. What's he doing in a Baptist church? Or whatever denomination you don't like. Chances are good that most of us will better relate to this one. That person who has hurt you deeply and you can't get over the hurt. What if you saw them praying in church? What makes this guy the star of the story, this tax collector? It's the same thing that gives us space with God, space to settle in, space to be free to be ourselves, space to receive heaping doses of mercy and grace from him. The thing that makes him the star of the story is his humility. It's not because he's a good guy. It's just the opposite. He's not a good guy, but he knows he's not a good guy. The Pharisee doesn't know that about himself yet. I like what one commentator said about this. He said, I'd like to push this story another week down the road, and this guy comes back a week later. Is he still praying the same prayer, or is he going back from the forgiveness he got the first week, going, okay, God, you know this week I did a lot better. Okay, now you're a Pharisee again. You see, it's this humility that we come before a holy God because ultimately my self-worth and my self-confidence and my self-righteousness is nothing when you put me up against Jesus Christ. He's the standard. And the kingdom of God among us is characterized in our lives by this, this humility 
that drives every piece of who we are. It's not that you think you're dumb. You don't have to think you're dumb. You don't have to be humble to be smart. You just don't announce it. It's like the pastor who got this. You hear about that? The pastor who got the button for being the most humble man in church. And he wore it to church the next week. They took it away from him. <laughs> this is about falling before a holy God and recognizing that old saying that found its way into our hymnology. Nothing in my hand I bring. Only to your cross I cling. Let's pray. And as we pray, here's the question of the day. Where do you find yourself in this parable? Father, these are hard truths. Every one of us, if we're really honest, acknowledge that we are so much the Pharisee. But as best we know how, we ask you to help us to get better at being tax collectors. We pray that you would have freedom in our lives to help us move towards humility. I don't really want to be humiliated to get there, but I do want to get there. So we pray that you'd give us the honesty ask you to get us there with whatever that takes and when we get there help us to understand how deep is your mercy how live filled is your grace and in that we pray that those people who are around us would see that your kingdom has indeed come in Jesus name we pray Amen. Invitation.